series we've been working on pretty much since last fall, a year ago. Um, took a little bit of a break in the summertime. And uh, then we uh, resumed it again uh, in, in the ordinary time. This series, the latter half of Genesis, Encountering God in Ordinary Time. And it's a source of fascination to me that the story of Joseph uh, is, is so long. It, it's, it's, Ray Bakke pointed this out last week, that it's longer than most of the books of the New Testament. And it takes up about over one quarter, 25% of the book of Genesis, which is already quite a long book. So what is that about? Why is it so important to God to have left so much about Joseph? And I have this theory uh, that Joseph's story is a microcosm of our story. I think that it's a microcosm of the story. Uh, there's something about it that just underscores the heart of God, which is for reconciliation. And you, you already see those themes going through the book of Genesis, you know, with Esau and Jacob, and they're falling out, and, 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 and God's desire and longing for us to be reconciled and to be restored. But it comes into full bloom here with the story of um, Joseph. So our story, of course, is that the triune, or I like to say the social God, I think that social God is a way of saying triune God. In other words, God is a community. And he's, ref he's, he's reflected his image in creating us. And, and he's left his image in creation and said, I've left humanity in creation as a sign that I'm present. The ancient gods and goddesses, they used to put their image, they used to have their worshipers put their image in temples as a sign that that God was present. And it's like the creation was God's temple. And he left humanity in that temple to let all of creation know that God has not abandoned his creation. So he put us in, in community. And now, because of the fall, he's on this relentless mission to reconcile humanity and creation from the effects of the fall, and has chosen to do so in partnership with us, which is the biggest scandal of all, because we're so messed up. It's a scandalous thing. He, he, he chose to partner with us knowing that um, we would get it wrong over and over again. But he chose to do it that way. You ever decide to do something with your kids when it would have been easier to do it by yourself? Why do you bother? Why is it such a hassle? Why do you go through that? Same reason God did. He's relational. He wants a relationship with us. So, an example of the scandal of this story is, does anybody know how many Christian denominations there are in the world today? Being such beautiful people of reconciling unity and reconciliation, how many Christian denominations are there in the world today? Close, you're getting there, you're on the way. Since the Protestant Reformation, there was, I think, one, there was two and a half at the Protestant Reformation. The reason I say two and a half is the Catholics had kind of had this schism in the Middle Ages, and then they kind of tried to work it out. 
um, East and West, and then there's the Eastern Church and the Orthodox Church and the Western Catholic Church. But after uh, the Reformation uh, of, of the early 1500s, up to the year 2000, there uh, were uh, 1,600 denominations. Wow. Do you know how many there were by 2000? Okay, there's 1,600 at, at the year 1900. At the year 2000, how many were there? 34,000. And since 2000, do you know how many know there are now? 43,000. Do you know how many denominations form every week? Five. Five new Christian denominations every week. My point is, we don't do this reconciling thing very well. Scandalous. And yet, in spite of that, Jesus' prayer, Father, that they may be one, even as you and I are one. Now, this reconciliation business is not all kind of sweet and syrupy. Let's just get along. Can't we all just get along? No, it's hard. You better believe it's hard. It's difficult. There are serious issues. Through the church, I... I came from, a, I'm a French Huguenot. My family background is French Huguenot. I studied the, the Huguenot uh, Reformation. In fact, John Calvin was actually French. He came from the French Huguenot movement, moved to Switzerland, but he's actually a French Huguenot. Do you know how Catholics and Protestants dealt with their differences in the 1500s and 1600s? They took turns excommunicating each other and then executing each other in the name of the Lord, of course. So my point is reconciliation, we don't do it well, and it's not easy. It's not easy. So I don't want to judge other generations, because let me tell you something. They were facing painful, difficult issues where they felt their whole life and salvation was at stake. So before we judge them, we better first of all just back up and look at our own judgments and our own lack of reconciliation because that same, we may not martyr each other, we may not execute each other, we may not excommunicate each other. Well, actually we do. We excommunicate each other, excommunicate each other nowadays by tweets or by ignoring one another or by stopping working out stuff, by stopping the talking. Different ways we excommunicate each other. So it still goes on. Now, the word reconciliation is to exchange enmity for friendship, to become friends again. So it assumes there's been a breakdown of relationship, but it assumes there was a friendship that existed prior. There was a right relationship, and that relationship was violated in some way. One or both parties violated one another. And I literally mean that, mean that word violated. There was some kind of violation or offense that occurred. So words like repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, these are not just theological words. In fact, they are not theological words. They're not ethical words. They're not moral words. They're words about a story. And if we extract them from the story, we lose the heart of God in these incredible words. They explain, they describe something. And reconciliation is to become friends again with God, with one another, with creation that's been, relationships been broken there. So let's get to our story. 
And I'm going to be covering a lot of text today, uh, but it's a story, so it should, it should hold you, hopefully. If not, catch up in a few weeks. We'll see you at the end. Verse, verse 1 of Genesis 42, when Jacob learned, this is Joseph's father, that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. So the ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. i got to stop here for a sec. Hey, folks, it's 20 years on. This ridiculous favoritism is still going on. Oh yeah, I'll risk your lives, but I'm not going to risk Benjamin's life. That blatant favoritism of Jacob is still continuing. 20 years later, the same favoritism that already wreaked havoc in his family and divided his brothers, it's still going on. Keep that in mind. It's still there. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to the ground, with, or sorry, with their faces to the ground, verse 7. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you are spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. And the Hebrew there is you've literally come to molest us. You've literally come to violate us. Interesting language. Keep in mind that word remembered because remembering and forgetting is just an incredible theme through the whole story of Joseph. Remembering, forgetting, remembering, forgetting. The, the Hebrew word zakar. And it, it's, it plays so prominently in this story. And you remember that Joseph is remembering two things right now. He's remembering his dream, but he's remembering something else. And so this is not just an act. He's not just doing a drama, a one-man show here. This is real. Joseph is experiencing post-traumatic stress syndrome. He's experiencing trauma. There's been a trigger because this is what's happening. He's remembering. No, my Lord, they answered, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you've come to see where our land is unprotected. So what's he seeing? He's remembering his dream, but he's also remembering this, isn't he? It's been over 20 years, but this is all a flashback right now as he sees those brothers. The last time he saw them, they were doing this to him. So this isn't an act. He's, all of a sudden, things that he thought he'd forgotten, feelings that he thought were buried, issues that he thought were resolved, are all coming and flooding into his mind and the surface. And they're triggered by the sight of these brothers. And he sees them throwing him into the pit, falling into the dungeon, crying for mercy, crying that they would let him out and they wouldn't. And then being sold into Egypt. 
treated as merchandise as he's abandoned, but he also remembers this. So he's thinking of the dream, but he's thinking of the trauma. You see, wounds have to be addressed. If wounds are not addressed, they come out. They'll fester. But unless you take the grace of God to those wounds and allow God to minister to those wounds, and it requires you wrestling, it requires you lamenting, it requires you doing, I think, what Joseph, the only thing he had grace to do at this point. He had to be real. It was the only way he knew how. So, we know the story. Joseph uh, is thrown into the pit, trafficked as a slave to Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. As Marcus preached last Sunday, he's thrown into jail. And in that jail, God continues to show incredible mercy and favor to him. So much so that he became the the de facto warden of the prison. And a little while later, Pharaoh's Baker and Butler did something that offended him. We don't know what. We think he threw, might have thrown a party. Maybe they got a blood tanked and they dared each other to throw a whoopee cushion on this throne or something like that. I don't know what happened. But whatever it was, it offended Pharaoh. So they both end up in jail. And then these, this, and so prison is the great leveler, isn't it? It doesn't matter if you're Conrad Black. Or you're a pedophile, you end up eating at the same table, right? In jail. It's the great leveler. So Joseph is actually the supervisor for these aristocratic butler and cupbearer and baker of the king. And it's during this time in jail that they have a series of tandem dreams. There's a series of tandem dreams. In fact, the whole story of Joseph is a a series of coupled dreams. His dreams, now the dreams of these two guys, and then Pharaoh later. The first dream, the, ba- uh, the cupbearer tells Joseph that he had this nightmare, and it's like this time lapse. He saw a vine with three branches, and he saw this time lapse where the, the branches sprouted grapes. And then he took some of the grapes and he squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and he offered them to Pharaoh. And so Joseph told the baker, he says, or the uh, cupbearer, he said, Good news. He said, this, the three branches mean three days, and in three days, Pharaoh is going to restore you to be his cupbearer. And they're, woohoo, good news, right? The baker says, my turn. He says, oh, let me tell you my dream. I had a dream of three baskets of bread that were on my head. And then the crows came and ate. The ravens came and rather and ate the, the bread. So Joseph tells the bad news to the baker that in three days, His head will also be lifted. But in a different way, he will be uh, decapitated by Pharaoh. And sure enough, those dreams came true. So Joseph begged the baker, or the cupbearer, he said, please, don't forget me. Don't forget. But it says as soon as the dream came to pass, the cupbearer was exalted back He totally forgot Joseph. Totally forgot. It says that Joseph didn't even come to mind. He was an ingrate, 
refused to show gratitude. It was all about him. And two years passed now in the jail. While Joseph was in jail, Pharaoh himself had two, two dreams. First one is one of these beautiful, sleek, fat cows that came out of the Nile and were, were grazing among the, the reeds. And then we can call it turned into a nightmare. We'll call it the nightmare of the ugly cows. The ugly cows that came also out of the Nile, and it says they ate the fat cows. Pharaoh woke up, but then he dreamed again. He dreamed of this beautiful sheaves of wheat, seven sheaves of wheat that were then consumed by awful-tasting cereal. And so he was really desperate to get the interpretation. So he cried out to his helpers, and his cupbearer was there, and his cupbearer says, Now I remember my sin. I remember what I've done wrong. He says, When I was in jail, there was this young man who told me my dream, my, or my interpretation of my dream, and it came exactly to pass as he said. So they called for Joseph from the, from the prison to come to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh told him the dream, and he this, he said, I heard that you can interpret dreams. And I think this one statement is the key to Joseph's life. He says, I can't interpret dreams, but God can. Joseph was a man who understood the mercy of God and depended on God's mercy for everything. He recognized that there was nothing that he had that didn't come from grace. The cupbearer, he was an ingrate. But Joseph lived his life in gratitude and recognition that there was nothing that he had that had not been received. And he acknowledges God before Pharaoh tells him his dream. He talks about the cows and the wheat. And then Joseph says, King, those seven cows and those seven grains of wheat represent seven years where uh, Egypt will experience incredible abundance. And then after that, there will be a severe famine for seven years. So bad that, you, that everybody will forget the prosperity and the abundance that they were in. So Pharaoh, here's what you got to do. You've got to plan. You've got to prepare. So take these seven years of abundance and begin to get ready for the famine. And Pharaoh was so impressed with Joseph that he looked at all his, supporter, his, his support staff and he said, who better than this man to, to make responsible for this mission? And so he took Joseph and he put his ring on him and he put a, a gold necklace on him. He even gave him a wife. Uh, the daughter of the priest of On, the, the, the city of On was the city of sun worship. Interesting. And uh, the Pharaoh gave Joseph his, his wife, and it says they had two children, two sons. The first one they called Manasseh. What does Manasseh mean? In the Hebrew, it sounds like to forget. Remember what I talked about remembering? Forgetting, he said, the Lord has caused me to forget the troubles that were caused by my family. My family pain is now transformed into family joy. And Joseph actually thought that he'd forgotten about all the pain until those bros showed up. But there, it was a new season of life, and I feel that God is speaking that over some of you today, and he's calling your name Manasseh. He's going to cause you to forget the bitterness and the pain and the hardship. But he's going to do it in a healthy way. He's not going to do it where you suppress it and you deny it. But where you process it in, at his, in his time. Because healing takes time. Shalom takes time. And it's okay if you're not there yet. If it's, it's okay if you're still wrestling and struggling. 
and, and even lashing out sometimes. God's love and grace is big enough for that. I had somebody walk in today and said, I'm sick of all this blankety-blank stuff around here. I just said, well, just go home, take a break. I love Jerry Cook. He said, you know what? You have to give people time and room to be weird. And sometimes that's just what community is. Right? So Joseph, it took time. But God blessed him. Then he had a second son. Does anybody know the name of his second son? I like this one. Ephraim. You know what Ephraim means? Ephraim means doubly fruitful. For he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And so Joseph administers those seven years of abundance. And Egypt has bumper crops. And they prepare for the famine. And he orders them, gives instructions to prepare for the famine. And then the famine hits. And you see it depicted there. And people begin to come from around the world to Egypt because they've prepared. They've stewarded uh, the crop. And so this is the point where Jacob, back in Canaan, says to his sons, it's time, we have to go to Egypt and get help. But he leaves his son Benjamin there, keeps his son Benjamin through Rachel. Rachel, remember, favoritism was his favorite wife, the pretty one. And so he had Joseph with Rachel and he had, he had Benjamin. Joseph now, he assumed was dead, so it's like, I'm not going to lose Benjamin, right? And so off they go to Egypt and they arrive over, overwhelmed by the power and majesty of Egypt. And Joseph sees them. And then this. See this? Let me just go back. See that? This is what's happening in Joseph. His dream is coming back of the sheaves of wheat of his brothers bowing before him. And so even though it's painful for him, even though there's trauma, Gordy, he recognizes that even though he, he, he can't understand or reconcile the pain that these brothers caused him, he still recognized that God was in control. God was in charge. But he, he, he lashes out and his pain and anguish helps him be a good actor. He lashes out to them, calls them spies. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. So Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you're spies. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as the Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. If you're not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you're spies. And he put them all in jail for three days. Joseph had a bit of a conscience. After three days, I like this, he says to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you're honest, man, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And this they proceeded to do. You, you have to believe that he was being affected by his emotions. He realizes after three days, if I only send one guy, my dad will starve if I don't have more help for them. So he thinks it through, right? And trauma does that. You, you get out of your head. They call it the amygdala hijack of your brain. 
where, all, where, where terror, fear, panic takes over your brain and you act. And that's what's going on with Joseph. He's processing on the fly. He's making it up as he goes. How many have been there? You make it up as you go. Especially in this reconciliation business. It's hard. It's the hardest work I've ever had to do. They said to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. Do you notice how many times brother shows up in this? Brother, brothers, brother, brother. We saw how distressed he was. Now they're, they're having a they're having a flashback, aren't they? We remember how distressed he was. Do you remember when he pleaded for his life, but he would, we would not listen? That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them because all the time he'd been using an interpreter. See, is guilt bad? Is remorse bad? Not unless you stay there. It's a good grace from God. Grace that caused my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Right? Grace that caused that guilt to come. Grace that caused that, that sociopathic behavior of mine that doesn't realize what my words, what my actions, my body language is doing to other people. That's sociopathic. Every one of us as sinners are sociopathic. We lose the capacity to be aware of how our actions affect other people. Our body language, how we talk. We're so self-absorbed. We're stuck in it. And grace is, is the surgical precision of the Spirit of God that cuts through that. and says, wake up. Awakening. And there's an awakening happening with these brothers here. It's God's grace. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back, spoke to them again. And he had Simeon, who I think was the second or third, uh, and bound before their eyes. Now Joseph weeps. This is another thing I need to say about reconciliation is learn to cry, learn to lament. Stop saying to First Nations people, get over it. Stop saying that. Stop saying that. They need to lament. They need to grieve. Hundreds of years of oppression and sexual abuse and uh, dispossess, dispossession of their lands, their property, their generational heritage, their storytelling, their songs. It's not going to happen in one day. It's not going to happen in one year. Repent of that. Let them grieve, even if it's hard, even if it hurts you, even if you have to take it. Jesus took our sociopathic awakening through our rage and our, our, our anger at God and our guilt. We lashed out at him, and God took it for reconciliation, for reconciliation. I, I read these court cases where somebody has raped and killed a family member and the, and the person will apologize to the family. And the family will scream at him, rot in hell! You rot in hell! And when I read that, I go, you know, I think I get that. 
I think I get that. I think I would do the same. I think I would do the same. But if the perpetrator can understand that that is part of their healing and say, you know what, you're right, I get that. I get that. Would you forgive me? You rot in hell. Forgive me. You rot in hell. Let them say that as long as they... What, what are the imprecatory psalms about? About Lord smash their heads, smash their babies' heads. What's that about in the psalms? Is that, where, is that God's will? No. But he knows the pain of our emotions and our trauma and the need to get it out in his presence. He understands that. Shalom takes time. Healing takes time. And so recon reconcilers stay in the fray. They stay in the battle. They stay. They don't walk away and say, I don't need to take this anymore. Now, sometimes you need a break. That's okay. But you keep coming back. You keep coming back. Isn't that what God did? Isn't that our story? Isn't that what the cross is all about? Do you see how the story of Joseph is our story? Kind of raw, hey? Welcome to nice... Peaceful Advent Sunday morning here. So he turned away from them, began to weep, and then came back and spoke to them again. And he had Simeon taken and bound. And so they go back. And this is just a scenario where they're talking to each other and he hears them. And he takes Simeon and puts him in jail. Then he instructs his, cup, his, his butler to take the money that they paid for the grain and stick it back in their sacks. And a little bit later on the journey, they find it and they go, oh my goodness, what's going to happen to us? They're going to think we're thieves. But they go back to Jacob and they tell Jacob the story and they say, we can't go back unless we bring Benjamin. And Jacob says, no way, over my dead body. Over my dead body. You're not going to do it. Can't. I can't do it. I lost Joseph. But time passes. We don't know how long, months. They run out of food. They say to Jacob, we can't go back unless we bring Benjamin. And Jacob, then, and, and, and uh, Jacob says, uh, there's no way. And so Judah, Judah becomes my hero. Actually, Judah is my hero in this part of the story. More than Joseph. I love Joseph. But Judah becomes my hero. Tell Judah that. Sandra. <laughs> it's a good name. <laughs> Verse 8. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. What's happening to Judah? It's no longer... See, he, he still sees his father favors Benjamin, but he now gets over it. He now says, you know what, there's something bigger. It's like Randy Ponzio's last hit song before he died. It's bigger than you and me. He went, I was telling Samuel, he went down to the Vancouver riots where this, the buildings had been burned out and Randy set up his music and he began to sing, it's bigger than you and me. It's bigger than you and me. And Judah began to recognize it's bigger than me. And Jacob began to recognize it's bigger than me. It's bigger than my petty little favoritism and interest. It's bigger than us. The story is bigger than us. 
So he releases Judah says, as it is, if we had not been delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags. Take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm. Notice a little balm, because there wasn't much around. A little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Mmm. And he said to them, take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I'm bereaved. I'll suck it up. It's bigger than me. Okay. So God's dealing with Jacob too. God's dealing with the brothers. He's dealing with Joseph. And he's dealing with Jacob. There's a reconciling work. That in the fullness of time, God might gather together everything in heaven and earth together in Christ. That's what God's at work. What's God at work in your life? Reconciliation. That's the sum of what he's doing. That's where this story is going. Right? So they go back to Egypt with, with Benjamin. They introduce him to the Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph or Joseph's servant, and Joseph instructs his servant, actually, we're going to meet at my house. And the guys freak out because they think it's because they took the money. He's going to think they stole the money and they're going to get ambushed. And they're really worried about it. And they beg Joseph. They beg his servant, rather, please, we found the money in our sacks. And you know what the servant says to them? It's actually in the Bible. He says, well, fancy that. He says, something magic happened. I guess God just stuck the money back in your pack because we got paid. It's fine. It's great. <laughs> so they bring Simeon out of jail and he meets with the bros and Joseph, they bow before him again and he's overcome with emotion but he, he restrains himself as he asks about their father and he sees Benjamin and he's so overcome with grief he has to run away and weep when he sees Benjamin and he washes his face and comes, him back, comes back to them and he orders a meal to be served to them and to their amazement, he, he orders them in the order of their birth. And they're looking at each other in amazement. And then they, give, he gives, they notice that Benjamin, oh, that's not very good vision. I got such good vision on my screen. I'm so sorry the vision isn't very good on this, is it? Ah, well, we won't complain, will we? So uh, Benjamin is five times as many pancakes as the rest of the bros. But do they care? No, they have a party. And they're quite happy, and it says they drank freely. Now, what does it mean to drink freely, Dan? Yeah, open bar, and you don't have to drive, right? You know you don't have to drive, so you're not, you're not using restraint. And I actually think that's part of this story. When Joseph accuses them a little bit later, they were kind of a bit tanked, as was Benjamin, Right? So, Joseph instructs his servant to stick his most valuable goblet in Benjamin's sack, puts all the money back, and the money, they, everything, so double the money, triple the money, I guess, if you, if you calculate it, 
And they go back, and then Joseph says, go after them. Tell them, somebody's stolen my goblet, and whoever has will become my slave. The rest can go. And sure enough, they find the goblet in Benjamin's sack. And they're overwhelmed. And they return. And they say, listen, we are your slaves. This is Judah. He says, we are your slaves. And, and Judah falls before Joseph, asking him for mercy. And Joseph says this, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Now Judah's second speech. The first one was to Jacob. Now you are going to see here an incredible story version of metanoia, change of mind, of repentance, in action. Watch this. So Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my lord. Let me speak a word to my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead and he is the only one of his mother's sons left and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces, and I've not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes down to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with that boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No! Do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Bingo. Sociopathy healed. I can't bear to see this happen to my dad. My father. 
And Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! All the Egyptians left. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard him. Can you imagine all that grief, all that pain? But now, breakthrough, hope, joy. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, look, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. Twenty-two years since they sold him. Twenty-two years. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and no reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but... God, he made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and the ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. And I will provide for you here because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so, much, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you've seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked. They finally talked. Afterwards. It's kind of like, oh. Finally. So he discloses himself. So they go back to Jacob. They went out of the land of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. And they told Jacob, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's the ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned, and he did not believe them. And when they told him everything, Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. He saw the carts. It's overwhelmed. So they make their way back to Egypt. This is the route they traveled from Canaan, Hebron, Beersheba to Goshen. Joseph rode in a chariot to meet them. And they meet and they're reconciled. They embrace. 
And so Jacob had a few years to enjoy Joseph before Jacob died. And after he was dead, the brothers got together and they said, sent a message to Joseph and they said, you know, our father has a message for you. Message is, please do not hold this against your brothers. Forgive them. And Joseph wept and he called them together and he said to them, he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So we have this incredible microcosm of our gospel story in this story. And I, I've been reading the, the passion of Jesus over the last few days about how Judas betrayed Jesus. And how the chief priests and the Sadducees, the leaders, plotted to kill Jesus. But Peter announced to them at Pentecost that Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. Paul wrote to the Romans, Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. When evil is done to you, overcome it with good. Because when you don't, you become like your enemy. But when you overcome evil with good, often your enemy becomes your friend. Not always, it's not a guarantee. But often. God was not overcome by our evil. He overcame our evil with good. But he suffered. And so forgiveness is a choice. It's also a process. I love what Gordy posted on Facebook a few weeks ago. That scripture where Jesus says not only seven times, but 70 times seven. If there's someone that's hurt you and offended you, and you find you have to keep on forgiving them, that's normal. It's a choice. It's a process. It's a state. And then it's, it's kind of like a recipe. Repeat three times. Repeat four times. Repeat again. As needed. Right? And the foundations of forgiveness. Remembering. Remembering what? Always remember God's mercy to you. You and I can't forgive unless we constantly remember the mercy shown to us. Come to terms with the choices of others. I can't control the Jacob's favorite favoritism. I can't control that. Come to terms with that. If you have to lament it, you have to grieve it, come to terms with it. Refuse to be a victim. Forgiveness says, I will not be victimized by your actions towards me. And it trusts in the goodness and the sovereignty of God. You meant it for evil, but God's bigger than you. God's bigger than that. He's a good, good father. And I'm loved by him. That's who I am. That's who I am. You can't change that. You can lay a sword to my throat. You can pierce me. 
with a sword. But you can't touch the joy of God in my soul because of whose I am. So the story of Joseph reminds us of God's invitation to partner with him and one another to be agents of reconciliation in a broken and a polarized world through suffering. Reconciliation is a call to suffer. It's the call of the gospel to repent. Even when evil is done, to repent. Repent doesn't mean you did something wrong. Repent means change your way of thinking. So if somebody violates you or molests you or oppresses you, why do you need to repent? It's not because you've done something wrong. It's because they're evil. Miroslav Volf in his book Exclusion and Embrace brings this out. Their evil becomes part of you. So you need to repent of it. Say no to that evil and overcome that evil with good. There's suffering involved. Repentance, forgiveness, and love always wins. Love always wins. Now we're going to do communion a little differently today. And I'm wondering if someone can just go call the children in uh, the primary and preschool to see if they want to join us. I know they often do.